Welcome to The Patient Physician, a space for doctors to explore their physical, mental, and financial wellness. Your peers and industry leaders will destigmatize institutional perceptions while redefining success, money, and personal care. Get ready to pull back the curtain, because here, you are both patient and physician. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Patient Physician. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and this is my co-host, Chris Fulbright. Uh, Chris, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Paul? Excited to be here. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Dr. Blackwell, how are you today? I'm fine. I'm I'm looking forward to this process. <laughs> <laughs> it is a process. I will tell you that much. Uh, I I think everybody goes through through bumps in their day, and and certainly getting to to this came with a few. But uh, I am super excited. I know Chris is as well. Uh, we've known each other for several years, and it's. Uh, always good to see you because you share insight with us and, and perspectives, frankly, from the trainee level, from a physician level that we just really don't consider sometimes. And and I would tell you that over the t- course of, of knowing you and, and learning more about uh, the physician uh, path and, and training curriculum and, and everything that they go through, everything you've gone through actually helps us be better for clients as well. In, in doing this, we want to talk in depth in some of your experience and some of the things that, that you've gone through to share with uh, some of the listeners, some of the unique um, experiences that you have, not just in being a physician, but having to uh, help guide this ship of um, challenges and not just small challenges. We'll get into that uh, a little bit later. I think that a lot of uh, people remember how hard it was to course through COVID, but we're going to talk about an event that actually you quantified as being even more difficult. Prior to that, let me just give our uh, listening audience a a quick background on you. Dr. Tom Blackwell received his medical degree from the University of Texas Medical Branch or UTMB and completed residency at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center. Dr. Blackwell is board certified in internal medicine and emergency medicine. His special interests are student and residency education. Dr. Blackwell is the Associate Dean for Graduate Medical Education and Professor of General Internal Medicine at the University of Texas Medical Branch. In addition to a busy private practice, he has major administrative and teaching duties at UTMB. As the Associate Dean for GME, he has administrative oversight of over 50 residencies and approximately 700 and growing residents and fellows in training. Previously, he was the director of the Division of General Internal Medicine and the medical director for Harborside Medical Group. Also, he was a program director for uh, internal medicine residency training for uh, 19 years. Now, at the national level, Dr. Blackwell has been selected for a six-year appointment as a member of ACGME Accreditation Appeals Panel for Internal Medicine. He's a past chair of Internal Medicine Residency Committee which regulates all training in internal medicine and its subspecialties. He was a member of the board of directors of the American Board of Internal Medicine from 2004 to 2008 and has been listed as super doctors, one of the super doctors for 10 consecutive years now. So long list of achievements there. When you go through that and you see the spectrum of everything that you've done, I think it's also intriguing how much more that you aspire to continue to do um, when we sit down and, and, and people who have been in your uh, career for decades, they're talking about rounding the corner and, and planning for retirement, which 
um, is not necessarily the headline of every day that you get up. So would you just start with telling us a little bit about how you see your role, uh, what you do on a day-to-day basis, and um, what gets you up in the morning? Well, thank you, Paul, for the kind introduction. Uh, <laughs> a lot of things you said. Some of those things been so long ago, I hardly remember them. So, but, but what gets me up every morning and what I like about my job, and I kind of orient sort of my prioritization in, in three different ways. As the associate dean for GME, I function in an oversight role. And how I do that oversight, I base it on sort of three priorities. My first priority is to ensure patient safety. And in in that role, I've got to make sure that residents and fellows, and to some degree faculty, when they're interacting with patients, they can do so in a safe manner. And that when they complete their training in whatever specialty that might be, that they are able to go out and practice that specialty independently without supervision safely. Now, I can't do all of that myself. I have to depend upon the program directors and in the subspecialty programs to do that. But I support them on those decisions because sometimes those decisions are very difficult. And just to pick uh, an example, neurosurgery, seven-year training program. How do you tell someone at the end of five or six years of going through very arduous and difficult training, you just aren't making it. And we really think you ought to pursue another career. And so part of that is protecting the patient because when somebody finishes neurosurgery or ophthalmology or internal medicine or radiology, we want to be sure they're competent in those particular specialties, to name a few. But the other part is protecting their resident or fellow, that any decisions regarding their, their career, their advancement, their competencies are made fairly. They're just decisions that the resident or fellow has had ample warning and time to remediate any deficiencies that might have been found in their performance. Because really, that's my major constituency. Once you get past the patients, it's a residence and fellows. And I would like every one of them to complete their chosen field satisfactorily, have a good experience during their training, and go out and be successful physicians for our public. And those are sort of my the two main thrusts of my job. Most of the time, they're aligned. And sometimes they're in opposition. And that's the hard part of the job is when they're in opposition. So you had brought something up the other day, and that is speaking to the the fact that how do you tell somebody that after all this training that they're not going to make it through or that they need to uh, make a different selection? And, and, and you addressed personality selection as being a component I think sometimes we go one direction because that's either what we hope or want for ourselves or we feel like is expected of us from others. And so you're you're somewhat intervening in that after somebody's already spent a bunch of time. So can you speak to how you even approach that person? What 
you do to break that kind of news or how you redirect them in a way that uh, sets them on the right path? And, and, and how much does personality selection, uh, as you mentioned, really play into that? Well, there's never anything easy about telling a resident or fellow that they're not performing in a satisfactory manner or asking them, is this really the specialty for you? Do you really think you've chosen correctly? There's, that's never, ever an easy or pleasant discussion. And I hate every one of them. And it never seems to get easier for me to have those discussions with people because it's painful for me. And I know it's painful for the resident on, on the other side. We often, though, don't come to those decisions in a single meeting that this realization is something that comes over time after their particular program director at clinical competency committee has met with them and discussed their performance. And by the time it gets to me, they generally have some idea that there are problems. And uh, my job is one is again, to make sure that they've been treated in a, in a fair and just way. And then if I can maybe give them the right advice on how to become successful in their particular program. And, and a lot of times with a little redirection, they can be, but other times it's clear that maybe helping them find another program. Uh, and, and I mean, there are really literally dozens of examples I could draw on, but perhaps one I might talk about is, uh, plastic surgery, as you may or may not know, plastic surgery is one of the most competitive programs to get into in the nation. So if you're able to match into a plastic surgery program, that means a few things. You've done very well in medical school. You tend to have scored well on your USMLE exams. And you've done a, a fair amount of research in that particular area. It usually takes a good credentials in all three of those to match into a very competitive program like plastic surgery or perhaps dermatology or orthopedics being the top three most competitive in the United States. So in the last few years, that experience of a resident who was in a plastic surgery program, was in his third year. We have an integrated plastic surgery program, which is six years in length. So he's about halfway through and was uh, performing reasonably satisfactory, but, but was having some issues and personally wasn't completely happy. And not all the faculty were completely happy with him. But nonetheless, if he would have persisted, I think he could have pushed through and finished plastic surgery. Don't know that for sure, but he's a very talented young man, to say the least. However, after talking with him for several meetings, we decided that perhaps the best thing for him maybe is to transfer to a different program. And one of the things I always try and do, if possible, is find some other program within our own university that we might be able to transfer that resident or fellow to. This gentleman transferred over into something that sounds like a completely different thing from plastic surgery to pathology. 
very, very different. And I can tell you, he became exceedingly happy in pathology. And the pathology department voted him as their most outstanding resident. That was not only a success story for him personally, because he's much happier and found the right fit for him and his family, but actually a success story for pathology because he really took on a leadership role within that department for of the other pathology residents. And so it was truly a, a win-win for everyone. It doesn't always work out that way, but it is certainly something that uh, I always try and make happen is can I find out another place at UTMB where they might be a better fit? Uh, and I view that as one of the very important aspects of my position in guiding residents through their training. That, what a success story that is. Thanks for sharing. That's, that goes to your leadership and, and your communication style. And so we've had the blessing of knowing you for many years now and, and seeing this. And I would love it, if you don't mind, to speak a little bit on, on your thoughts around having a good leadership team. You know, we talked to you about this fast-growing group of 700 and, and things that are going on, the dynamics and all the things you had going on. Paul, Paul frankly, as, as long as that list was, was probably skimming the surface of everything you have going on. And could you talk a little about how important it is to have a strong team to make sure that you're getting the correct feedback so you can have those kind of conversations with people to, to guide them in the right direction? Well, certainly no one person can keep their finger on a pulse of 700 residents, 50 plus programs. I certainly can't do that. And, and, and I doubt very few, if anyone can. So the first thing is to have your core team of folks within our particular office, which is the GME office, graduate medical education. We've got six people that that's really all they think about is GME and they each do sort of little different segments of the GME, but where we have to relate is at two different levels. One is with the program directors, and those are faculty physicians that are in charge of that particular training program. With the pediatrics, internal medicine, general surgery, ophthalmology, ENT, they all have their own program director. And it's really one of my responsibilities to maintain a a relationship with them, to know them personally and have them feel comfortable to call me anytime they have a problem to discuss so that that line of communication is always wide open. And part of building that relationship is to support them. And when they have a problem, try and help them solve it. Uh, so that's my job as the associate dean of GME. But just as importantly, my team of support folks have to have the same relationship with the program coordinators. And those are men and women who are in a more support role within a given program. And every program director has his own unique program coordinator for that program. So our program coordinators have to have a good relationship with our office and vice versa. And we have to continually educate and improve the knowledge base of our program coordinators and make sure they feel supported. It's really a very important job because often 
the program coordinator will be the first person to, who detects a problem with a resident. It may be something like depression or some serious financial issue that they're having that's impairing their their ability to do their job correctly. And we want to know about that so that we can hopefully intervene in a positive way. Many times, if you can get on top of a problem early, you can make it not become a very, very large problem later on. So having a, a strong interactive relationship, me with the program directors, my folks with the program coordinators, and to help at each specialty to have the program director and program coordinator, they need to work together effectively as well. And that sounds like that should be easy, but often it's not. We spend a lot of time trying to improve the way the program director and program coordinator function together as a team for their residents. You know, you talked a little bit about the personality and trying to, to uh, make sure that somebody's uh, heading in the right path when you were speaking to the, the plastic surgeon turned pathologist. But I found it interesting to learn over time that, that, that there's not just the trying to find the right thing for your personality, but then if you look at each subspecialty, there really are personality types that are sort of pulled to each uh, specialty. So do you, do you look more for that or, or are you looking for uh, the uniqueness of, of each individual to, to make sure that they're progressing uh, along the right track? Well, I think you got to be careful about stereotyping every specialty as only one type of personality can be successful. Because I don't think that's true. I think in speaking in generalities, that if you were going to compare, say, a, a neurosurgery resident with a psychiatry resident, that you would find that for the most part, their personalities are pretty different. You know, if you're a surgical specialist, you're mainly the most happy when you're in an operating room. And that means that, you know, you're really not interacting with the patient in a verbal way. You're interacting with them in a very important way, but they're, they tend to be unconscious because uh, they're asleep while you're doing their neurosurgical procedure or their general surgery procedure or their plastic surgery procedure. So communication is very different where as opposed to a psychiatrist, well, what do they do? They, they really verbally interact with their patients on a more continuous basis and don't do any real procedures. So obviously those are very different personality types that are gonna be attracted to those specialties. We need them both. They're all very important in taking care of, of our populace, but they're not the same kind of people. And a surgeon's really happiest for the most part when they're operating. Somebody like me, an internist, is often most happy in sitting down talking with patients and discussing how to manage their chronic illness, which internal medicine really has become mainly chronic illness management. Very different than what a, uh, a neurosurgeon might do. So you've been in, in the GME space and educating and uh, 
working through the various programs for several years. And I'm just kind of curious with someone with your tenure, what you've seen um, been part of the evolution in terms of the training, the, the way that, that you have to approach it with your, with your team and the GME department from uh, the program coordinators and directors to just the incoming residents, what they have to deal with. And I know this could be a huge uh, topic in general, but how uh, technologies have affected that, how uh, personalities, expectations, there's, there's a lot that can probably be unraveled uh, and unpacked in, in something like this. But as you've seen quite literally decades of this, you know, what would you say is probably the biggest change that has happened in a good way and and then maybe something that you feel is still lagging behind what what needs to catch up with the training program to help them become very successful physicians and and go out into practice probably the most controversial change and it's now been in, in place for quite some time was the the duty hour rules that limited the work week of a a resident to 80 hours a week, averaged over four weeks. That's still a lot of work. And that they should get one day off in seven, averaged over a week, averaged over four weeks. And the other third one is they shouldn't work a, a continuous duty shift more than 24 hours. And to most people, those sounds like, man, they're still working pretty hard. Those are all really reasonable rules. But that was a dramatic change in medicine when those rules were put into place. And it's interesting that the main reason why those rules were put into place was not so much resident-centered, but patient-centered, because there was pretty good data that fatigued resident physicians made more patient care errors than non-fatigued residents. And so perhaps that has improved patient care. There are some other issues that are, arose that were unattended when duty hours were put into place. But probably the most significant positive change that has made is in resident wellness. And that sort of came out of this sense when residents were less fatigued, they had more work-life balance. They still work very hard, but their work-life balance was improved. And I think that's probably started the whole sort of wellness thrust, ways to prevent burnout, not only in residents, but, but in their faculty. And that the beginning of that was duty hour controls. And I think that's probably been one of the biggest changes that has occurred in medicine. And we're still looking for ways to more effectively improve resident wellness. And we have programs in place to, where residents can seek help if they need it, everything from uh, how to deal with the grief of losing a family member or a very difficult patient care situation in the hospital to financial issues. We, we now have resources uh, that residents can call upon to help them with those problems. And that's continuing to develop. We have uh, wellness lectures now that are given throughout their residency training on how to help them develop coping mechanisms so that 
they do have more work-life balance and they're more satisfied with their work experience. And they know how to handle the stress more effectively that they're going to inevitably have during their training. So that's probably been the biggest change uh, from that side on what's gotten better for residents. And that's his push towards resident well-being, resident wellness. And it's something we're continuing to try and prove here at UTB and are in really a continuous quality improvement mode in relationship to resident wellness. I think the other sort of negative side that has come out, uh, which, and it has a lot of benefits, but it also has some negative, and that's the electronic medical record. And one of the negative pieces of that is that residents spend a lot more time staring at the computer screen and uh, massaging their notes and adding in all kinds of data, then spending time at the bedside with the patients. And some of residents' notes aren't very useful anymore because they're so full of cut and paste data that can be found in other places in EMR, but it so crowds out their note that you really have a hard time figuring out what they're really trying to say about the patient. This is true on the faculty side too, not just residents, but the EMR has changed the way we practice medicine. There's a lot of great things about the EMR and I would never not want to have an EMR, but there are also some negative things about it. It's reduced efficiency. Nobody's really more efficient because of EMRs. It's replaced time with the patient with screen time. And those have probably been two of the biggest changes that have occurred in medicine over the years that changed the way we care for patients and the way we train residents. Probably not a, a popular thing to hear, but I, I know that I've talked to, to people, uh, whether it be friends or family or whatever, and they've, they've been in rooms where their doctor comes in, they ask the questions, they're on their computer, and this is the way that it's done now. And, and yet very little eye contact is made. Uh, you're required to see certain number of patients. You have to be productive. You're measured by that. But yet I think from, from our perspective and, and yours as well, you know, physicians are patients too, right? The whole thing that we're talking about here, but I think people in general feel less seen. And, and if you have to see as many patients as you have to, cause you have the productivity and then you have to be on a computer. Where is that connectivity? Do you think that, that they're missing things because they're not able to really, it has nothing to do with their actual skill set that they've spent their whole life doing, but rather I have to administer to the computer rather than really paying attention and dedicating that connectivity with the patient. And, and how do you fix that? What, what, you know, if the EMR is a good system? Well, it's, it's not a perfect system. And part of what the EMR has evolved into is a billing system. So all the boxes that are checked, a lot of them are documentation requirements to be able to build at different levels. And so some of what we do with the EMR really has no relationship to improving patient care, but it does improve the efficiency and the amount that you can bill for any given encounter. What do I think is going to be the 
long-term answer. We already know that having scribes, someone who sits at the computer and enters the data why the physician interacts with the patient, really improves satisfaction. The patients like it more because they have that direct face-to-face eye contact interaction with their physician. Uh, the physician likes it because they've got this other person over here who's entering all the data on the computer. So both sides are happier. The problem is, is that that requires hiring other individuals to be these scribes and that costs money. So what I hope happens is that with the advent of AI and more natural language processing, that we'll be able to go into a room and enter our patient's name, pull up our patient, and at that point, start interacting with the patient. And the AI is good enough to listen to our conversation and generate the note. And and whatever queries that perhaps we didn't ask, they would just be lined out as one, two, three, I'll be sure and check on this. And that's where AI can actually help us do a better job of delivering patient care. Now, we're not there yet, but at the rate things are developing, I think that's a real possibility that we could be there in the next five years. And that would actually truly help patient care. Yeah, you know, in our, our industry, Paul and I have noticed the same transition, right? The, the people touch, the, the looking someone in the eye, the connectivity, having somebody with us to be able to take the notes, to stay connected. Because uh, in various ways, sometimes you miss the details. Sometimes you miss the connection. Sometimes from a litigious standpoint, right? You want to make sure that you're getting everything down and making sure that you're hearing that. Uh, we agree with you. We visited with some people from other campuses and they have shared the same sentiment around how could AI uh, benefit, right? From a protection standpoint, from a connective standpoint. Dr. Blackwell, as we have met with people, the stress you brought up, wellness, a second ago, the importance of that and dealing with stress. One of the things that we have run into, obviously, over the last few years is COVID and the impact that had on programs such as yours. Truthfully, we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up the uniqueness of your location, your campus, the leadership that you had to expose years before COVID ever happened, where by being on an island and being impacted by a hurricane, where I believe you said 70% of your island was underwater and having to move people off campus. You know, this podcast is, is geared towards physicians. It's for physicians to be able to share and destigmatize things of stress and destigmatize these stories. If you could take us back to what that was like to make those decisions, I think it's such a unique story that, that people would love to just hear through your own words, the emotions of things that happened back is, is 2015. Is that correct? 2008. 2008. Uh, okay. Uh, that's when Hurricane Ike. But what I would tell you is you've been through one hurricane. You've been through one hurricane. Mm. And one of the things that was so difficult for not only UTMB Hospital in this healthcare organization, but really for the island as a whole, is that in 1983, we had a pretty direct hit from a hurricane named Alicia. And, you know, it really wasn't that big a deal. I mean, power was out for a day or two, and, you know, a couple of people had their roofs damaged, and some trees were blown down, and 
but it was a you know a direct hit. And so within four or five days, everything was back to work. That was about it. So for those of us who've been around a long time, we kind of expected that uh, Hurricane Ike, which struck us in 2008, which if you look at the wind speed, which is how we tend to judge hurricanes, is how what's their most powerful sustained gust, was much less than Alicia, which wasn't that big a deal in 83. And uh, we had hurricane codes. You have to build houses certain ways so they don't blow down in the wind. So and we were, in a, in a way, a bit lulled into it's not going to be that big a deal. Well, it was. And it wasn't because of wind damage, although there clearly was some wind damage. The vast majority of the damage came by flooding. And 70 to 75% of the island did go underwater. And I'm not talking about an, an inch or two underwater. I'm talking about feet, multiple feet. My house, for instance, had seven feet of water. The office building that I'm in right now, you know, we marked the high water marks on all these buildings. The first floor would have been up to my chest if I had been standing in it. So that's very similar across the whole campus. Everything was flooded. And so instead of just having a couple of days of power outage, the whole hospital complex was completely out of commission. At that time, we had about 550 residents in training, and there was no way they could train in the hospital. The hospital is not operational. Uh, we couldn't take care of patients in the hospital. We couldn't see patients in the clinic. Uh, it was just absolutely not a functional uh, care delivery system here on this island. Uh, of course, we had a lot of FEMA and other emergency personnel, but the island was devastated. Uh, utilities for the island took over a month to be restored. That's water, electrical power, and natural gas. All the natural gas lines were also flooded with water. So if you'd had one of these generators you always hear about on TV that can uh, you can buy to supply your house with energy in case of an electrical outage, would have done you absolutely no good because all the gas lines were flooded with water as well. So it was really going back to the pretty much the Stone Age on this island at that time. So what to do with these 550 residents who need training. We set up an off-island command post, and I have great respect for all the other hospitals throughout Texas who graciously took our patients. So between Houston, Austin, Dallas, San Antonio, we had the vast majority of our residents were relocated uh, within two weeks after the end of the storm. We were so efficient at getting them relocated. You know, found a place for the dermatology residents. We found a place for the general surgery residents, oncology fellows, whatever your specialty, neurosurgery. We found hospitals that had training programs that would accept you as an additional trainee. The ACGME went into their emergency protocols and granted an increase in training caps to all of these different facilities so they could take our residents and fellows. And so within two weeks, we had everyone placed. 
and no one had to extend the length of their residency training or their fellowship training. They all finished on time. Now, they couldn't really come back to the island for several months, but after several months, most of them were, and I'll use the word repatriated, we were able to bring them back and, and they could finish their training. There were a few that were so happy where they were, they just didn't want to come back. And I mean, I can understand that. But the vast majority after several months came back and successfully completed their training at UTMB. And the rest is history. Since then, because of that very terrible experience that hardened our facility, we actually had spent tens of millions of dollars of changing the way our facility is organized and that really nothing important is on the first floor in any of our buildings anymore. So that if we did get another seven or eight foot flood tide within a couple of days, we'd be back operational again. And none of our facilities that were crucial would be flooded. Everything is raised above ground. We no longer have generators in the basement or equipment in the basement. We have all of our computer systems are backed up somewhere else at Dallas or another state. So if we lost every computer here, we could reproduce everything. So we have a very robust and redundant system now, and we're ready for the next storm. Hopefully it won't come anytime soon. Probably just so many other stories that you can dive into there, but it, it wasn't just that, that simple. I know you're skipping over a lot. You you'd shared that through this storm that there almost was no UTMB. It almost just got shut down and, and didn't get reopened. Well, there was a, a very strong movement because UTMB is located on a barrier island and because the repair costs run into the, you know, $50, $100 million just to get our facility back operational. And at that time, there was not a medical school in Austin, which, uh, of course, is the capital of Texas, that perhaps the most feasible thing to do was to move what remained of the medical school, which is really an educational endeavor, move it to Austin. There are plenty of hospitals to train in in Austin. It's a vibrant community. And so there was a big push to move the whole organization to Austin instead of rebuild it here on the island. Uh, and it was very close to happening. Our legislators from this area and from other areas pitched in to keep that from happening. But we were probably one or two votes away from no longer being located in Galveston, but being a medical school, a UTMB in Austin. Uh, I'm glad it didn't happen. I guess I would have been just as happy living in Austin as I do in Galveston, because for me, the most important thing about happiness is your job and how much you enjoy doing what you do. But uh, I'm glad we're here. I think it's been good for the Galveston community and the surrounding areas. We are the largest employer, and it would have been an incredible economic hit to an island that was already reeling from damage that was caused by Ike. So it would have been a real tragedy for Galveston Island and the surrounding community. Yeah. And, and y'all didn't just survive it. You thrived. 
uh, you went from 550 to now over 700 and continuing to grow. So, you know, and, and more satellite locations. And so quite the opposite. It seems that you've come back and stronger, but even through this disaster and, and we were talking about how COVID was another completely different issue. And you said that it was not as hard, would you, but maybe they don't compare. How, how would you compare the two? Cause then you had to turn around and deal with that and, and managing through that. Can you talk to that? Well, they're different in different ways. They both had some profoundly negative effects. If you look at the effect on people, which is how COVID and Ike were similar. If you look at the elderly, we did not have lots of elderly folks on Galveston Island who drowned because of the storm surge. Fortunately, a lot of them had been evacuated. But what they didn't expect was that their houses would be destroyed and that their wedding pictures were lost forever or that all the mementos that they had gathered over their lives that meant things to them were gone. And what we saw was that broken hearts really do change your life expectancy. And many of these elderly people became depressed and they just gave up. And a, a lot of them died because of that. Uh, and a similar thing in a way happened with COVID, although COVID itself, of course, as we know, is, is more deadly for elderly patients than, than younger patients. But, and, and that certainly took its toll on some of the older patients. But also there was another component that perhaps we don't talk about enough was that the social isolation that occurred to many of the elderly patients who didn't die of COVID, they died of loneliness. And there's lots of data out there that loneliness has an incredibly deleterious effect on your life expectancy and your cognitive ability. They, their dementia accelerated because of their loneliness and it wasn't reversible. So that was an incredibly negative impact on the elderly in Galveston and the surrounding area, and of course, the whole United States actually, uh, was this social isolation and loneliness that developed. But a very similar thing happened to people who lost everything in the storm. They couldn't adapt. They didn't have the adaptability to say, okay, well, I lost everything that I built up over the last 75 years. I'm just going to go on from there. No, they gave up from there. And... That's where the human toll for both of these catastrophes occurred. Uh, for the residents in training, certainly having to go to another city and finish your training was uh, difficult. Many of them have families that were separated from their families for some of their training period because they were relocated to some other facility. But, you know, most residents are pretty flexible, pretty adaptable. They got good training where we sent them to, and they and they turned out fine. Uh, COVID was a little bit different in that residents were asked to do things that they really didn't sign up to do. I mean, if you were in a dermatology fellowship or a radiology fellowship 
or general surgery residency, and suddenly you're being asked to take care of these very sick people with a disease that you didn't even know if you got it, if you were going to live and die, because in the beginning, we didn't clearly know how dangerous COVID was. I mean, were you as a physician going to uh, get infected with COVID and die? We didn't even know that. Nonetheless, when I would contact residency programs in Durham or radiology or any of the other specialties who don't typically take care of sick inpatients or patients in the ICU, everyone agreed to do it. There was no one who didn't feel the calling to help their fellow human being in a time of crisis. And to me, that was the, the heartwarming thing that came out of it. It wasn't the tragedy that I saw patients go through. And of course, that was the terrible part. But the really amazing part was how our residents stepped forward and did what they had to do to try and deliver care to patients in a very strange time when we didn't know what was going to happen to any of us. Another example of that is when the, the vaccines first came out. And of course, at the time, we thought you take that vaccine, you're never going to get COVID. And it was very life-saving. Uh, the residents, of course, and healthcare workers, we vaccinated quickly. But they were still working long shifts, long hours. Uh, the 80-hour work rule was dispensed with because it was called an emergency. So we no longer had to follow those rules. People were working much more than 80 hours. So the vaccine came out. The ICUs, the wards were still full of COVID patients everywhere. I mean, all the other kinds of illnesses were mainly pushed out. Hospitals full of COVID patients. So the residents work taking care of these patients. And then we'd have vaccine drives on the weekend, on Saturday, where we would go to a park and the residents <clears throat> would all line up and we'd get syringes full of the vaccine and patients or people would drive up in their car and sign a little sheet of paper and stick their arm out the window and we'd vaccinate them. So after working all week long, long hours taking care of patients with COVID, they would go out and volunteer to these vaccine drives in the park to try and prevent other potential patients from developing COVID. Uh, it was just amazing. Uh, people would ask for their help and they would step up to the plate. And, you know, know what, whatever anybody says about the new generation, the truth is when they really have to perform, they absolutely do. And they, they did a great job and I will always have the utmost respect for what our house officers did and take care of COVID patients. Number one, thank you for sharing. Thank you for uh, taking us back to Ike and, and what you went through. And, and again, as Paul said, there were so many decisions along the way that you've had to make. And, and since then as well, we're glad you, you all were able to stay there. You brought something up and, and when we were visiting with you before, and I've heard you reference it again on this call using different language. And it's frankly uh, has been something that Paul and I have referenced now to other people. And it was when we were talking to you about with everything going on, how do you keep from getting burned out? And you were sharing some stories with us and you're, 
you know, you kind of see your job as, a, as almost like a fireman. And your language at that time was see things as opportunities to be solved rather than as a problem. And, and that language, as we've met with other people on your leadership team, you've transferred that thought process to your team. And, and listening to you describe the events of Ike, describe the events of COVID, and then saying, nope, that's an opportunity to be solved, right? We're going to okay, stay focused on that. And the positivity of you towards your residents and the new generation where so many things are negative, right? They're, they're, all these things that we see, your positive emotions about them stepping up and helping their fellow man, uh, very, very powerful. We appreciate, uh, appreciate you taking the time to, to share those with us and, and to the listeners. Well, thank you. You've had to go through a couple of big events and, and, you know, being down in Galveston, I'm sure you're going to face some more, you know, and, and just sort of thinking forward where we started was this is not something where you're looking to close out the next year or two years. You seem to be so still engaged and passionate about what you do and how you interact with these residents and fellows. So if you had to, look around the corner and try to help them with, with the unknown next tough thing that they're going to have to address. What, what do you think that is to, to best prepare them for their uh, career ahead? Well, of course, the, by definition, if it's unknown, it's unknown. So we, we really don't know what they're yeah, going to we, we had you on because we figured that you did know. <laughs> but, but, but the one thing that I would tell people to do is a lot about how we react to things is really all about perspective and you can decide and view something from the most negative viewpoint and then it affects you and your persona and the way you feel about yourself and, and look at the world and in a certain way or you can view it from another perspective and walk away with a much more positive and uplifting feeling about it we do some very tough things in, in medicine. We, uh, I'm happy to be on the inpatient service right now. And we have some very, very ill patients, several of who are, are going to die or, or die in the next few months. And, and that's very unpleasant. But there's positive perspectives you can get out of that too. What you can learn from them by seeing how they choose to deal with their disease, how they those who maintain an optimistic viewpoint and, hey, you know, I, I may only have a few months left, but I'm going to enjoy those last few months the best I can and make them as rich as possible. And when you can see other people do that, it makes you wonder, you know, if I'm ever in a crisis like that, I hope I can do it too. I hope I can be as good as they are. And... That's, uh, it's really awe-inspiring to see how people deal with very challenging times. And, and it's also instructive to each one of us uh, to think about how are we going to deal with that kind of challenge in our life if it, if and when it comes, because it's, it's really more of when it comes, because it's coming for all of us in one way or another. There's a lot of learning that can occur by seeing just how other people handle it. You know, it's so interesting that you said that right here at the, the very end, because, you know, in your position, being in a leadership role, 
and in charge of or overseeing so many people that are directly learning from those that you work with or for you're taking the position of, of learning. It sounds like just as much uh, as you can from them so that, that you can turn around and do, do positive things. And it's just such a great attribute to have is not always being in the, the role of the teacher, but also the, the student. Um, you know, as we round this out, the, the name of the podcast is the patient physician, which we think means a lot. And so, uh, as a final question, I'm curious what that means to you and, and the work that you do. Well, I would say that, uh, I've kind of gone through a, a mild evolution in myself. A lot of what we do is take care of people who are very ill. And so we, we manage these acute processes and, and try and make them better. And we still do that. It's what I do every day. But that's kind of, you know, at sort of trying to fix the problem after it's occurred. And what I find myself now wanting to do is put more and more energy into disease prevention, something that I think we really do not as as a country put enough effort into is how do I prevent disease, whether it be diseases of self-abuse from tobacco, alcohol, obesity, sedentary lifestyle, not bothering to get your blood pressure checked or your cholesterol checked, all the things that if we could just intervene in at an earlier age, we could prevent so many problems. We could reduce the death rate from heart disease. 700,000 Americans are going to die from heart disease this year. And yet we're really not doing a very good job at addressing all the risk factors. What if we could find a way to reduce that to only 400,000 Americans dying from heart disease? Wouldn't that be wonderful? It's not because we have to do more genetic research. We already know how to do it. We just aren't doing it. We don't need an NIH grant to know that people go out and exercise every day. They're going to age slower. They're going to have less cardiovascular deaths, fewer strokes, and less cancer. We don't need to study that. We just need to execute. And that's really where my sort of major focus is now. I just want to thank you, as Chris mentioned, thank you for your time, um, you know, to be able to interject in your day and hear the the history of, of where you've been and where you're looking forward to help lead all these young residents and fellows. Uh, it's exciting that, that you're not looking, like I said, to, to round out and, and find that retirement door, but that you're actually looking forward to, to how you can learn more so that you can teach better. That's very encouraging. And, and, um, uh, Chris, any any last thoughts? No, Dr. Blackwell, just want to thank you again for your time and, and uh, sharing your wisdom with us. We, we sincerely appreciate it, and I'm very confident that your words uh, will be valuable to the physicians that listen to it. And, and I can't believe all y'all do is keep talking about my retirement. Do I really look that old, guys? <laughs> Come on. That, that, that's why it's audio only. Uh, <laughs> there was a old joke that I was told that, you know, you have a face for radio. Uh, not that, that was what I was told. So <laughs> anyway, well, great. Now, to get well, there, you. There, 
their mental image of me is going to be like, uh, I, I have a cane and I'm like barely moving it out of my office. <laughs> No, that that is absolutely not the case. Uh, in fact, you you get up and run every morning, uh, from what I understand. So doing, like you said, practice what you preach. You get up and you exercise and you, you stay moving. So I do exercise every day. I, I don't necessarily run every day currently, but I do exercise every day. Well, there you have it. Active, attractive, and <laughs> leading our, our young group. So thanks again. All right, guys. Thanks, Dr. Blackwell. This conversation was brought to you by Physicians Resource Services, a firm supporting medical professionals to improve their financial situation and pursue their personal and professional goals. The Patient Physician is produced in Austin, Texas. Editing and sound design are in the hands of the PodConnects Podcast Network. Please email questions or show ideas to info at physiciansrs.com.